Let me tell you what my deep research and basically vision is. I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> the aliens won't let it happen. <laughs> Happening now, breaking. Bernie Sanders is a Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> what are the tips? Give me some tips on how to work with Wes Anderson. Um, be ready to speak very fast and very <laughs> clearly because that's definitely one key thing. Until you and six kids you barely know in wet bathing suits have surrounded nine chimpanzees outside of a Wendy's, you probably really don't know yourself, okay? Yep. And we back. Hello and welcome. You're listening to your new favorite podcast and the best in political sports and paranormal news coverage. I'm your host, Wes Anderson, and this is In the Shed. This is episode 68, so whether you're back for more or finding us for the first time this week, hey, thanks for tuning in. It is late Monday night, January the 15th, MLK Day, and I'm in a shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama. Also, I can hang out with you tools and talk about the latest headlines, stories, and rumors in the world of politics, sports, and the paranormal. Our guest tonight is an author, philosopher, TV personality, occult expert, and ufologist, internet influencer, and interesting person. You may know him from his appearances on TV shows like Hellier, Ancient Aliens, or Decoded, as well as from his many published works or appearances on other podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, my babies, my tools, my people, I give you the eternally interesting Dr. Alan Greenfield. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. Sure, I'm glad to be here. Yes, sir. Um, well, to start out, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work for those listeners who may not be as familiar. Okay, uh, let's see. I'm uh, originally from Augusta, Georgia, or Augusta, Georgia, <laughs> uh, because there's a, a swamp-related accent there that I had to outgrow for I bet. about 20 years. And... Um, um, I got involved in all the things involved with at about the age of 12 or 13. I mean, I think the interest was already there, but I got actively interested in ufology and cryptozoology mm. and uh, magic and mysticism, uh, all uh, at a very early age for that sort of thing. Although I wasn't the only one. I mean, there are still some people, uh, Rick Hilberg and Gene Steinberg come to mind, uh, and Dave Halpern, who uh, were also part of what was then known as the teen ufology movement. And uh, uh, that is uh, at a time when ufology probably consisted of maybe 100 people, mm. maybe. No media coverage, no nothing at that time, so it was uh, a lonely path to take. But I also uh, got involved with magic and mysticism, although I didn't become a, you know, a, uh, involved with any organized magic until uh, maybe 10 years later. Um, probably couldn't have a lot of that stuff is definitely adult-oriented, so to speak. I don't mean that to sound like it's 
the swingers club. <laughs> there are some groups out there, you know. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> that the overlap is, uh, I once said to a member of a group, uh, why don't you just join the swingers club? I mean, you don't need the mystical trappings. <laughs> Um, if there are such things anymore, but uh, anyway, so I have I have been doing field investigations for longer than most of your audience has been alive, and uh, oh, I be Terrell. I worked five years for the Psychic Friends Network, mm. which uh, uh, was I don't know about the others, but it was totally honest and straightforward. We didn't have scripts. We did readings and uh, um, had, I had about an 80% uh, accurate record based on feedback from wow. the client. Wow. And I, I guess I had I had to keep records, so it's not a number I'm just <laughs> I hold in my head, but it was, uh, I think I had 3,000 clients, mm. so a lot of them repeat clients in those uh, five years. No kidding. And uh, let's see, in my secular, regular life, uh, I've got three sons, all of them adults now. And uh, um, what else? I used to be in the art supply business. I managed uh, the uh, Atlanta branch of the largest art supply company in the world, I think. Wow. And, and I've been all over the world. So, does that summarize it fairly well? Absolutely, absolutely. You've already uh, answered a couple of my next questions, so uh, that was very thorough. I appreciate it. Um, well, remember, I, I was a psychic friend, so... <laughs> that's right, I, that's I right. I know the answers, you know. And that's uh, right, that's Baltimore right. Baltimore in 1904. Next mm. question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Mr. Greenfield, uh, may I call you Alan? Is that all right? Oh, please do. Okay, on Twitter I call you Al. I don't even know if that's okay, but that's what I do on Twitter. Is that all right as well? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, since Facebook went crazy uh, some years ago, actually since it got taken over by machines, mm. uh, and I had some sign-in problems for about three years, uh, Twitter, now X, uh, as they say, uh, is my major daily outlet for whatever uh, I find of interest or any rants that I decide to uh, make to uh, to the world. Mine as well. Mine as well. Uh, well, Alan, you've written extensively about UFOs and ufology. Um, what's going on in our skies has certainly been in the public eye as of late, even making regular appearances on the nightly news. What do you make of all of it? Um, I'm afraid that what I have to say will be something of a downer, but I've been in ufology for such a long time that I've seen this happen before. Okay. Government interest, uh, uh, imminent disclosure, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't happen. It's a long walk down an endless tube. And I think the reason for that are twofold. One is relying on government investigations is... Uh, trying to get uh, disclosure of something that the government really doesn't know. Uh, so uh, probably 
private ufologists like myself probably know more about the phenomena and what what limitations there are on the phenomena uh, as we can understand it Hmm. than any government agency that's ever been involved. Most of the government uh, funding uh, people don't seem to understand is by uh, engineering types who are concerned, and this is a legitimate concern, about surveillance from foreign countries or technology that exceeds our abilities. Uh, I'm all for uh, keeping ahead of the game there. I think it's kept us from a nuclear war for the last however many years it's been since World War II. So, you know, uh, I uh, am an advocate of peace through superior firepower because it works. Mm. Uh, It's not tasteful, but it does work, or it has worked so far. Uh, does it keep wars from happening, but it keeps the big one from not happening because it's just too terrible for anybody to contemplate. Even the Ayatollahs probably want to continue breathing, you know. So, right, right. So that's, that's one angle. The other angle is that ufologists, not quite as much today as during the first 50 years that ufology as such existed is addicted to the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Hypothesis for me is in quotes. It's not a theory. It's uh, it's a um, opinion or belief uh, because it doesn't have any grounding in the case materials or Anyone who's done field research can tell you that uh, uh, if, if you're out to find the hardware, you're not going to find anything because, except maybe, you know, uh, a downed weather balloon or something, uh, Chinese or American, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You can find those, but uh, that's really uh, a long walk down an endless tube mm. to... Uh, uh, late Jean de Plantier, a Canadian ufologist and friend of mine. Um, I think that the more fertile area to look is at the trickster element in the phenomena. There are two directions you can go there. One is to say that the phenomena may have some kind of archetypal basis. That is, it's something inherent in the relationship between people and the universe. It's an interesting theory. I know some very, very highly educated, intelligent people who uh, lean in that direction. I'm not one of them. Um, The other possibility is that something from the quantum physics universe, which is only beginning to filter out to large numbers of people, outside of the uh, the uh, professional physics community, even though the idea has been around, I guess, 75 years or thereabouts, uh, that uh, one strand of quantum physics, aside from the entire thing, seeming so spooky that it's something that, if it were coming in from anywhere other than uh, tenured academic circles, not my favorite group of people, but <laughs> if it was coming from anywhere else, it would uh, 
be dismissed as kook pseudoscience. Mm. And in fact, uh, it comes from the stellar celebrities of the of the physics and quantum biology universe, the notion of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. That may not be exactly what is uh, the direction in which a solution to the ufo mystery is found in but it probably is a better approximation than little green men from mars mm. or sirius or you know or the neighboring galaxies in one of the <laughs> the the immensity of the universe boggles the mind and the notion that uh, some of the movies you know, you know saying, oh, well, we came from a neighboring galaxy, I guess they mean, you know, planetary system, but uh, from a neighboring galaxy would require some uh, technology and a lot of time. So I, I think that, you know, if you ask the wrong questions, you get the wrong answers. Right. And the majority in ufology, now it's a majority as opposed to being virtually universal. There was that, and there was Valet, Keel, and me <laughs> uh, um, on the other side of the picture, um, and, uh, and and a few other people, in fairness. Uh, to now, it's a sizable minority opinion that the ETH is probably passe, it's never true, it needs to be junked. So would you say then that you fall more in the camp of um, what we're seeing being in the realm of interdimensional beings than uh, extraterrestrial life? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure that interdimensional is the is the best terminology, but in terms of you know pop culture uh, explanations, that'll do. Wow. Um, uh, the technical term in physics. Uh, is, well, I have to spell it because it's not what you first think. Uh, brains, B-R-A-N-E-S. That okay. Is, I guess it's short for membranes. And uh, it, it postulates either a specific number of alternative universes that coexist with our own in the same space, but at the same time, perhaps, but uh, in a different uh well, a different membrane. And uh, uh, there's also more attractive to me and more consistent with the phenomena, the notion that there are an infinite number of alternative universes. Hmm. If it is truly infinite, and I suspect that it is, then we're not dealing with the phenomena manifesting from uh from universe C or whatever, we're dealing with all kinds of things that are totally beyond human abilities to truly even see, let alone understand. So we see uh, essentially uh, our, our minds do a convoluted thing and uh, we see a substitute. The way our, our vision sees things upside down and our brains turn it right side up Right. For the convenience of, of you know of people. After all, um, the human race, from a biological point of view, has been around 
for what, 30 seconds? And life on Earth has been around for uh, 10 seconds. Mm. And in geological time, the Earth itself has been around for two seconds. And in cosmological time, uh, it would be an infinitesimal, tiny fragment of one second. So we're hardly built to uh, to apprehend in fullness any, uh, say, life form from some other brain or dimension, you know, if you want to use that term, although that may be slightly deceptive. Uh, we see what we're capable of seeing right and not what is actually the underlying stimulus for that because we're basically we just dropped out of the trees uh, you know a month ago so, uh, we know how to hunt and kill and eat and reproduce but not a lot of else mm. the rest is just uh, commentary and hopefully uh, some thought about ethics is this kind of the idea that we are three-dimensional beings, and if something exists in four or five or six dimensions, uh, it's hard for our brains to even realize what it is that we're seeing? It may be even more complicated than that, because a different brain from our own would not have the same laws of physics that we have. Hmm. I mean, it might be very similar. There might even be, you know, intriguingly enough, other Earths and other uh, uh, very similar universes because infinite is infinite. It means whatever you can uh, think of is there somewhere, whether it's interpenetrating with, with our own reality or not. I, uh, I can't say. Maybe they all interpenetrate and we're not dealing with one phenomena but many or maybe a select few, or maybe just one that is directly adjacent, whatever that may mean in terms of reality membranes. We don't know. Or maybe even, you know, I will allow that there could be visits from vast distances in the universe, the universe as we understand it, uh, by dipping out of this reality where the, the distances are immense, dipping into another and then dipping back in here. Right. But that seems to be a laborious thing to do if you could say, well, brain three, four, five, you know, to infinity uh, is right here with you in the shed right at this moment <laughs> and right here with me listening to what I'm saying, and it sounds like the government, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's a, I think, a more consistent with the inconsistency of the phenomena mm. than the ETH ever was. And ETH is uh, the product of the minds of people who uh, either they come at this from a military background or from a, an engineering background, including NASA, right. or both. And uh, people that think in terms of uh, nuts and bolts are going to think of nuts and bolts, witness the nature of most science fiction. Uh, it's mostly by people who are uh, speculating on where nuts and bolts might go in 100 years or 1,000 years or a million years. And uh, that's possibly, I would say probably, 
not the nature of the phenomena as reported by ordinary people. If you look at the reports, it's, uh, it has a trickster element, it has an archetypal element, and it has a high, high, very hyper high weirdness element. And that doesn't fit ETH. It does fit many worlds interpretation. Certainly. And uh, what do you make, Alan, of people who postulate that what we're seeing uh, is in some way time travelers or even possibly civilizations that have existed before us and alongside us? Um, I, I, I think that both of those things are quite possible because, as I said, if there are an infinite number of alternative universes, some of them would have totally different laws of time, if indeed time means anything to them at all. Right. Uh, uh, a famous thing, and I believe it was Kiel that first uh, uh, noticed this, uh, in close encounter cases, it's not uncommon for, quote, alien beings, unquote, to ask, what time are you in? Well, I don't think they're asking Eastern or Central. <laughs> I, think, I think they're asking... What kind of time matrix does your universe have? Hmm. We just popped in here and uh, we don't do time. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, it's uh, it, it, whatever you were to bring up as possible, I'd have to say, yep, very wow. possible. Uh, whether any of the cases that I've examined fit any particular profile or not, uh, that's another matter. I would say they mostly fit the profile of beings that are beyond our comprehension right. that interact with us for reasons unknown. And the only reason that it remains unknown is because we're not looking in the right direction. Mm. Uh, that is slowly changing, and we may actually have something to go on, but it'll take a generation to do that because... Uh, my generation of ufologists uh, pretty well, in the USA anyway, uh, uh, isolated people who uh, thought beyond that. The exception being uh, uh, Jacques Vallée, uh, who, I don't know, his academic credentials uh, sort of carried him forward. But uh, uh, they... The, the ufology establishment, if I may so characterize it, uh, pretty well ignored anything other than ETH. And even the skeptics, uh, or the so-called skeptics, the pseudo-skeptics, uh, created this false dichotomy, which is either these things have to be extraterrestrial spacecraft, just mm -hmm. like our own space program, mm -hmm. but all but, uh, more advanced, or... They are hoaxes and natural phenomena. Mm. That's definitely not the either or that's in, involved in ufology. That's a, a false dichotomy which leads people astray. I don't think that the people that do that are necessarily dishonest, but I do think that that's clearly wrong when you factor in the actual cases as opposed to, you know, uh, spinning theories uh, out of uh, one's own expectations. And and you say that uh, if you ask the wrong questions, you'll get the wrong answers. Uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. 
Um, let me ask you this. If somehow uh, we were able to confirm the existence, whether it be extraterrestrial beings, whether it be interdimensional, uh, whether it be on an entirely different plane of existence, kind of as you're saying, if, if there are uh, unlimited worlds that exist in the same time, um, what, if any, impact would that have uh, do you think on world religions? Uh, that's a very interesting question. I think it would have a fairly profound impact on any, for lack of a better term, fundamentalist religion. Okay. I think it would be, uh, interpretation aside, it would be confirmation of things like religious miracles, um, uh, manifestations that are considered supernatural, which is discarded by uh, uh, people with uh, religious beliefs that are non-fundamentalist. In other words, I think it would redefine what constitutes religious and what constitutes scientific because the phenomena that are dealt with in ufology, cryptozoology, uh, paranormal research, uh, whatever, uh, may be dependent on factors which would explain in a certain sense the reality of uh, the very phenomena that are reported in, in religious encounters. Hmm. So it probably would upset uh, the fundamentalist universe. Indeed, it already does. Uh, but... Uh, uh, now they just, you know, they write it off as devils and right. demons. Uh, the skeptics write it off as superstition and lies and whatever. They have a right to their opinions, but their opinions are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, I don't mean to, you know, be dogmatic about No, hit it. us with I, it. I mean, my opinion has changed over the decades I've been involved, but it has to be evidence-based. Mm. And then from the evidence, you have to tree out to what can this be plausibly and what what is unlikely to be just as plausibly. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. I'm, no one could be sure of the impact. No one could be sure what the impact uh, on uh, religions would be if, uh, let's say, uh, at one time, Mars <clears throat> had an advanced civilization, mm. and it disappeared, but the Martians are still around, and many of the uh, religious manifestations we have here uh, are actually uh, uh, technomatch, uh, to borrow from a science fiction TV series from long ago, that uh, uh, are truly advanced technology then you have to invoke Arthur Clarke's a truly advanced uh, technology would be indistinguishable from magic. Same would be true. A truly advanced technology would be uh, indistinguishable from religious miracles. Hmm. So, uh, you know, it, it, it depends on how you spin things. Uh, to me, it's not a challenge at all, but uh, uh, I imagine people who have some rigid... Uh, structure might be bothered by that. To me, it just says uh, maybe prophecy is because <laughs> there are some people who can slide in and out of our 
reality, just as yeah. part of the nature. Yeah. And can formulate ideas that are based on imperfectly seen, but uh, other uh, brains or related brains. I mentioned that uh, if there, if the infinite number, the inversion of M theory that postulates an infinite number of alternate realities, some of them are exactly like ours, only with one little difference or two little differences or three little differences. Hmm. So the prophet Jeremiah slips into reality B, just, you know, right right next to ours and comes back and says, the Babylonians are going to conquer us. Right. Forget it. <laughs> and uh, uh, so we'll say, well, he must have been talking to God. Hmm. The, uh, the pseudo-skeptics will say, uh, it must have been written after the fact because clearly you can't know what's going to happen. <clears throat> like they don't, you know, listen to polls when elections are held and things. <laughs> we, we predict stuff all the time. So, right. I don't know. There, there's no bottom line on that. I mean, this, you, you've hit on the area where this turns from being a scientific inquiry to being a philosophical inquiry. And. That's a whole different ball of wax. First, we have to establish that it's not tin cans from uh, Saturn or Alpha Centauri 3B or wherever the current uh, mythos is. And, and I love that you say that it has to start with evidence, that you, you uh, take in all the evidence and then you go from there. And I think that you're dead on when you talk about how no one can know these things for certain uh, it's okay to say we don't know. It's okay to say this is what I think or these are all the possibilities. I think that uh, intellectual curiosity is something that uh, unfortunately is not in vogue anymore, um, but it should be. Uh, you also have written a book entitled Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. Are the Men in Black real? And if so, who are they? They're so real that they have generated a mythology which is real in an archetypal sense, but doesn't involve real beings. Hmm. Uh, the uh, Tibetan term, I think, is tulpa. They are thought forms that are projected, but what or who is projecting them, that's something I cover in my uh, my latest book, which is uh, Secrets of the Real Black Lodge Reveal. Such a long title, I remember <laughs> it. Uh, the publisher and I uh, debated what to call the book uh, for a long time because it does tie into uh, Secret Rituals of the Men in Black and its predecessor, Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. That combination, that trilogy of books, is as close as I have come in many years I've been involved in this stuff uh, to well, to the truth, with a mm. capital T. Mm. It's not that close, but it's a lot closer than a lot I see elsewhere. So uh, mm -hmm. I highly recommend uh, learning the cipher, using it skeptically at first, uh, but if it uh, works for you, then continue. And if you think there isn't interference in ufology, such as the men in black, then... You, you really need to read up on the history of uh, 
magic and the notion of the of the secret chiefs of the third order and the black lodge hmm. both of which are very real um i mean their manifestations are real whether they are exactly what uh in magical circles they think they are uh or not that's you know that's beyond my pay grade well, and that's a that's kind of a brain teaser. That's a lot to consider and think about. They can somehow be real in a way that we can't comprehend, uh, but may not be real in the sense that you and I are. Uh, they may be projections of some sort. Um, is that kind of where we're going? Yeah, I think they they while there are cases that are fraudulent, and there are cases where. Uh, well, this is a, opening an entirely different can of worms, but uh, there are cases that seem to have been, uh, I don't know what to call them, government agents or, or mm-hmm. hirees or mm-hmm. you know, uh, people that are dressed up to look intimidating in order to uh, silence witnesses. And that's all based on... Uh, the long ago 1953 CIA panel that decided that the existence of private UFO organizations was a threat to national security Mm. in a number of different ways. And although there are certainly men in black type cases long before that, uh, some of the cases post-1953 that specifically attack existing UFO organizations, private organizations, and or uh, witnesses that have very, very telling cases may be uh, intimidation from government uh, officials based on that 1953 survey. I don't think that's going on now, and I think the actual tulpas that come from the... uh, probably from the Black Lodge. Uh, they are meant to sow confusion, and they do. Hmm. But they're they're real enough uh, in terms of the, what the witnesses report actually happens. Hmm. And uh, again, you have John Keel, uh, a great that historical debt for documenting a lot of those cases. Were hoaxes, a lot of them were not, and couldn't have been. I knew people who were doing the hoaxes, hmm. and they were they were not primarily hoaxers. They were primarily people who hated pomposity. Right. And heaven knows, Keel was a pompous ass. <laughs> <laughs> did but, uh, uh, Did you know John Keel? Yeah, John Keel was a piece of work. <laughs> but first of all, as a reporter, he was really good, although he. Uh, grew up, so to speak, in the the world of the, we have to go back a long way, but the men's magazines of the late 50s, early 60s, you can get a taste of that from his early book, Jadoo. Very interesting, but it's it's pulpy. So magazines like Saga and Argosy and True, uh, which were the big three. Not that I read them as a teenager. I wasn't interested in the pictures. Actually, they were uh, very, very mild compared to you know Playboy or right. some of its rivals. Uh, they were not 
exactly girly magazines, but they had stories. The example I always give, and it's a real example, although I am probably fracturing the title. I was lost on the island of lost women. Hmm. And that isn't something Keel wrote, but it's the genre that he wrote in. And I don't think he ever quite freed himself of that, you know, that orientation. Mm. Good writer, good popular writer. Sure. But, uh, and with some really good insights, but also he held himself aloof from ufology as such. And I think that was to his detriment. Interesting. Well, uh, you talk a lot about uh, magic. Um, can you give us kind of in layman's terms, when, when you speak of magic, what is it that you're talking about and what do you mean by that term? Okay, um, magic is a, uh, a species of metaphysics of occultism, which is uses the active rather than the passive voice. Okay. In other words, magic takes ritual as in religious ritual or even in you know the halftime at the big game mm. uh anything that is ritualistic and uh predictable but also spectacular enough that you get kind of lost in it uh, magic directs the energy that 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 sort of thing uh, generates or that is generated in paranormal events and focuses it to bring about change in our reality, which is a good deal more uh, elastic, we'll say, than, than we like to allow on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, in other words, it's malleable, it's bendable. Hmm. And if you know, if you can see the weak points in a particular set of circumstances within limits you can focus energy through ritual and through um, paranormal means of bending reality in conformity with your own uh, will wow now i'm using that term because that's crowley's term but uh, uh because will slides over into some really fascist notions that i I don't agree with, which is bending someone's will to your own is probably uh, a betrayal of everything the United States is all about. Right. Um, but uh, it has its advocates, and it is very interesting that Crowley used that term, uh, do what thou will, and uh, the most famous movie out of Nazi Germany was Triumph of the Will, and uh, I have seen something that very few people have seen, which is, uh, there was a book published in 1940 by a defector from the uh, Nazi hierarchy called, well, in English it's called uh, Hitler as he is. Hmm. And it's been a much maligned book, I think. It's been maligned uh, largely by uh, the forces of darkness, uh, but uh, Crowley, in his, by definition, later years, took his copy, probably got it when it was new, 1940, and made meticulous liner notes, his own commentary on the book, and uh, 
I was loaned a copy of that by the, shall we say, the Grand Fubah of one of the great magical orders of really? antiquity, so-called. Wow. And uh, that book, with the liner notes, ought to be published, because a lot of people who think that uh, Crowley is the be-all and end-all of uh, magic really need to know how sympathetic Crowley was to uh, the Nazi notion of mm. triumph of the will. Hmm. He made a distinction, but it's still, uh, and those people who are Crowleyites have made it their business to see to it that is not in print. Wow. And it should be. So would you say then that uh, magic is simply defined the ritualistic ability to bend reality? If you wanted to do it in one sentence, yeah, that would be, that would be accurate. Okay. Uh, we'll define this. Let's go a little further. Uh, what then is sigil magic, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and do you believe that that's what was going on uh, in the story of Hellier? No, I, I think that what was going on in Hellier, I mean, that... Boy, you're, you're comprehensive. I can tell you that. Um, Thank you. The, the team that did Hellier, and disclaimer, they're friends of mine. Uh, so, Very cool. You know, Very I cool. And personally invested there. It's like uh, uh, my son in the uh, uh, screenwriting business. When his movies come out, I don't know if you can trust my reviews. They're all positive. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, the, the Hellier team started out with uh, uh, their background was in ghost hunting and if you want to know what that is all you have to do is turn on the Discovery Channel, the Adventure Channel the National Geographic Channel well, maybe not right. and most of all the History Channel which I joke when they ran out of stock footage of World War II they started doing UFO hunters, ghost hunters <laughs> And hunter hunters, you know, whatever, <laughs> uh, For whatever sure. their particular thing there is, because uh, uh, it, it's very staged. Mm. But the Heather team was not. They were uh, a confluence of two ghost hunter groups. I may be mangling this slightly, but I think it, it gets to the point that became interested. Uh, principally the Newkirks, became interested in uh, certain aspects of ufology and decided to do a field investigation using their uh, pre-existing skills home during their ghost hunting hmm. period to investigate a case in uh, Kentucky, in eastern Kentucky, in the absolute total heart of Appalachia. Uh, a town called, interestingly enough, Hellier. And uh, actually it was named for a guy named Hellier, an early settler there. But uh, anyway, they also had done their homework, as obviously you have, and they were following the, I don't know if you call it a rule, but let's say the approach of well we start out looking for goblins because the great goblin case was at the other end of kentucky one of my favorite and, stories right uh uh 
I've been through that little town many times on my way to UFO conventions. Uh, it is even, well, as recently as I've been there, which is not real recent, still pretty remote, you know. So, uh, right. Uh, but, but still, they had received some uh, letters that they thought might be leading to uh, cave goblins or something like that. However, they were following the notion of all of the synchronicities. Mm. In other words, when things come together in a coinciding manner, it may steer your investigation into an entirely different path. And if you go on that different path, that may take you to a third path and a fourth, a fifth, which, of course, in, in my approach to field investigations, you just go with it, and eventually you come as close to the truth about whatever it is you're investigating as you're ever going to get. Um, and they followed that to a T. They started out, they went to the town, but synchronicities, coinciding events, intervene, and in each case, they went with it. Hmm. And more or less filmed it in real time. So there are people who are critics of the series, Hellier, uh, who say, well, they don't find any goblins or whatever it is that they think was the goal. Right. But being goal-oriented is self-defeating in this, in this environment. Interesting. Uh, if you go to... Uh, Pascagoula, Mississippi, looking for um, the aliens that uh, uh, Hickson and Parker professed to find. You're not going to find the aliens, but you might find the Singing River. <laughs> and there are all sorts of things that if you tree off to them, the whole thing makes a lot more sense. And the Hellier crew followed that out it led them to a lot of things, among them me, and uh, they continue to be among the uh, the younger best hope for the future of ufology, cryptozoology, uh, paranormal research, field research. I mean, there's academic research that is worthwhile too, but uh, for field research, they're among the best of the younger people involved in this. So I will be happy to hand the baton on as I whisk away to the planet Uranus. <laughs> well, how, how did you get involved in Hellier, Alan? And uh, what did you think of the finished product? The finished product is solid gold, and I would almost call it mandatory if you're interested in this stuff either as a, an armchair enthusiast or in uh, conducting your own investigation or forming a, a field research team. It's as close to mandatory as anything gets. Mm. It's definitely something uh, season one, two, and who knows what else uh, is uh, uh, a tutorial of how to conduct a field investigation. It's also very entertaining it is and production values are you know uh way above the standards of uh most uh, 
YouTube field researchers. Some of those terms are in quotes, but I won't identify <laughs> which ones. But I mean, uh, it's not a lot of talk. How they got interested, I mean, you'd have to ask them. Mm. But I do think they had read a number of books related to uh, UFOs, the uh, cult, and uh, adjacent matter. As I said, they had a background in field research on ghosts. Uh, in fact, one of their team actually, I think, invented the so-called Estes method of, uh, mm-hmm. of uh, I almost attempted to call it channeling, um, which is very interesting and which, if you don't know what it is, watch Hellier. There's a couple of demonstrations of it right there in the series. Absolutely. I think it's, uh, well, you can, I guess, buy the Blu-ray discs or see it if you have access to Amazon Prime. I think it's perpetually on there. Um, by the way, I don't get a rake off. <laughs> they're, just, they're just really good people. Um, one of the books they read was uh, the original edition of Secret Cipher, The Euphonauts. Mm. My first professional published by a real publisher book, uh, which I thought would change the world. Right. It was only many years later it changed them, and then it changed the world. I often say, before Hellier, I was almost obscure. After Hellier, I'm almost famous. So <laughs> I owe them a huge debt of gratitude. But to their credit, they learned about processing. Mm from the things that they read, including my book, but certainly not confined to it. Mm. And they are far more, if you've ever seen their also fantastically produced, uh, I think it's only one season at this point, but uh, uh, their Haunted Objects podcast on YouTube, uh, that's best thing going in the, in the high weirdness tremendously well done um also the unbinding which they they just released not too long ago was was very good as well is is uh, a separate consideration but yeah it's uh, definitely uh well worth seeing and that is a movie movie yes it is you know a series or anything um or a program it's a movie and maybe one day we will have uh one or both of the new kirks or uh, Tyler Strand or Connor Randall or any of those guys in the shed, they're welcome to join at any point. Um, let me ask you this. In your opinion, were there ever actually goblins in the hills of Kentucky? Um, the original Hopkinsville case, I don't know if you would call them goblins, but they were seeing what all over the world has been lumped together under the banner of the denizens of Magonia or Fairyland or hmm. the fairy, or the fae, or whatever you want to call them. There are bunches of names, but I think the common denominator is that they tend to be beings, sometimes associated with UFOs, sometimes associated with magic, and most frequently associated with folklore, including Appalachian folklore. Right. Uh, so... Uh, West Virginia and Kentucky are hotbeds for all of these phenomena. And again, I think that they're all manifestations of the same sources, not separate things as 
like there's a thing called Fairy Research Society, and they seem to take some tips from ufology, but they're focused on modern sightings of fairies and other denizens of the the fey world. And uh, there are ufologists who want nothing to do with that kind of research. And there are cryptozoologists who are, you know, after atypical cryptid animals uh, from Bigfoot to uh, mysterious cat-like creatures that appear and disappear. But uh, the majority of people in those areas don't want anything to do with other people that are in other of those areas because they think they're unrelated and I think they're all just different manifestations of the same stimuli. So you believe that uh, people in the foothills of Kentucky definitely saw something? Oh yeah. Um, I, I mean, if you if you do if you follow the synchronicities or do magic in a coherent way, something will manifest. But you best be careful what you ask for. Mm. Because you might just get exactly what you asked for. And some things that you might ask for are less desirable to find than other things you might ask for. Wow. I agree agree with you. If you're going to do caving, first of all, you need to learn some caving skills. Second, you need a a professional uh, caver or spelunker or whatever with you. You need somebody on the outside in case... Your cave or tunnel has a cave in. And finally, uh, some caves have bears in them, mm. and they don't like being bothered yeah. during their long siesta. So, mm. I mean, there, there are all sorts of things. I've done some caving and had my share of difficulties, but the fact is uh, one of my uh, teachers, if you will, was... Uh, Richard Sharp Shaver, the uh, uh, person best known for the Shaver mystery and the beings he described in the uh, in the caverns of the earth. He was not a hollow earth person, but he thought that there were hollowed out caverns everywhere. I personally think that there are mm. cave portals to these before-mentioned other uh, realities, but uh, some of them were most unpleasant, cannibalistic, uh, uh, evil creatures, uh, demented uh, beings, and you need to have a fair to middle in education on those things. Actually, right. there's one section uh, in the new book, uh, The Secrets of the Black Lodge, blah, 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 blah whatever it's called, buy it, but... <laughs> Whatever it's called, uh, uh, it uh, that is devoted to an experience not by Shaver but by another person who, uh, in fact, a, a pilot in World War II who had a, a dire experience with the, what seemed to be the cave creatures known as the Duro. Hmm. Hmm. I certainly want no part of. Uh calling any of those things into existence around me, uh, for sure. Um, you well, know, bringing them into existence is a lot easier than 
exorcising them out of existence. Mm. In fact, uh, back in the days when I call on personal students, I would teach them to banish or exorcise, or I would teach them to invoke or evoke. Right. Because it's a lot easier to bring these things into manifestation than it is to get rid of them. Wow. The longer they stay around, the more uh, more hooks they put into you. It's just the, the nature of the beast. Well, Alan, I would uh, I would be remiss if I did not ask this question. Those who have seen Hellier, uh, they want to know, who is Terry R. Wrist, and are you him? Uh, I hate that question because, A, no, B, I'm not. <laughs> and a, okay, not Terry R. Wrist. No, I'm not Terry R. Wrist. Or, and actually... Uh, I knew the person who used that name. Uh, let me phrase this correctly. Okay. Back during my uh, misspent uh, 20s or 30s, something like that, uh, where I was active in a radical political group where no one used their real name. Right. I, for example, went by the name... Don't laugh, please. Spider Rainbow. Spider Rainbow. Okay. And everybody in the group used a pseudonym, and I would presume Terry R. Wrist, who was briefly in that group, and the only period that I knew him in, that was a, uh, uh, what you would call a nom de guerre. Uh, And I know very little about him. I mean, he was only in Atlanta for about a year. He hung around with uh, my affinity group, all of whom had weird, you know, noms to give. Right. Uh, it was not particularly uh, kosher to ask someone, well, what's your real name? <laughs> so... Uh, Understood. Some, some of us knew, but to this day, I, uh, the couple people that I still know from that era... Um, or at least know where they are, I'm not going to, you know, disclose their personal information. Uh, we all have sins of youth somewhere sure. back, in the, back in the day. Um, so, and we were not really the badasses that we thought we were. <laughs> but anyway, I knew Terry for less than a year. The one thing we had in common, aside from the group, was uh, an interest in... Uh, Shaver in particular, and uh, I guess you would say ufology in Mm. particular, and since nobody else in that group was interested in that. And this is still back in the day when the numbers in uh, ufology, let alone Shaver, which was, you know, yesterday's news story even then, um, we talked about it, and I was working on a what I thought would be a a book. And I did a couple of interviews with him, and I did a couple of interviews with Carrie Thornley. Also, I'm not Carrie. Carrie has gone on to his reward. Mm. And uh, he wrote The Principia Discordia and other stuff. And uh, I spent some time in my hometown writing uh, Secret Cipher. And when I got back to Atlanta... He was gone, and I never heard from him again. 
So I don't know what he was like before. <clears throat> I do know what he claimed, which was that he was a veteran of Vietnam War and had been a, I think, a tunnel rat. But even that, that's third-hand information. And what he did afterwards, or whether he's still alive or any of that, I don't know. So the real answer is, I don't know Terry Wrist. It's like I know who he was when I met him under an assumed name. Right. And I know I have mixed feelings about including that material in the back of my uh, first two books. Sure. But, uh, just, just because I get tired of... I don't know. He doesn't have the same writing style as me, and he certainly doesn't have the same views as me. So, uh, or didn't. I mean, this is a long time ago, you know. Right, right. I'm not the person I was when I wrote those books, and I, I don't know that he was there. Uh, the only thing I've ever heard was from Hellier, which is they interviewed a guy, I think, in North Georgia, which interestingly enough used to be where the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light was headquartered hmm. and uh, this guy said he knew uh Terry for again a brief period like like a drifter and uh the guy wasn't a drifter he was a local very local if you are a native of the south you know what i mean by a local oh yes never been outside of cleveland georgia or whatever you know so right uh, uh, and uh, just a good old boy who met Terry, he said, pronounced it Reist. But um, I have no reason to doubt that story because it is linear after he was in Atlanta. He certainly had some different opinions than he expressed here. And it has led to some speculation on my part. But to be blunt about it, except that people ask about it, I don't care. He was a passing train in the night, and probably if I was writing those books now, I might use the information in those interviews, but I uh, certainly wouldn't use them as more or less intact interviews. I mean, they were longer than uh, than what reached print, but the, the printed version is uh, be authentic to what he had to say to me. Well, that is an overlong answer to a question. I'm Absolutely. So, yeah. For sure. And I just appreciate your, uh, your taking that question on. I know that you get asked that a lot. Um, my wife, who did not watch Hellier, I watched it from start to finish, and she would pop in and out of the room that I was in. And uh, at a certain point, she just said, Terry R. Wrist, really? It's terrorist. It's a pseudonym. And... That guy, and she pointed to the screen when you were on the screen and said, he's Terry Arris. So I, for her sake, I had to at least ask the question. Well, you're not the first. <laughs> probably, unfortunately, <laughs> the last. Um, <clears throat> it's just that I get the same story over and over. Look, if I had written that material, I would take credit for it. Mm. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, in fact, what I just said, you know, if I'd used the... Uh, the insights that he had, I probably would have said a friend said or right. a uh, person that I knew said. And then it would not be, uh, I mean, the, the interviews that I did with Carrie Thornley, which interestingly enough was in the same period. 
and at the local OTO lodge at that, which would carry out to no end. Uh, some guy asked to borrow the tapes of those. Mm. I don't know whatever happened to the tapes. But anyway, for a while, that showed up as a book, uh, obviously transcribed, on the Internet. Uh, Interesting. with Kerry Thornley or something. No kidding. That's fine with me. You know, I, I don't need that. Uh, I don't have to have the credit for having conducted those interviews. But boy, uh, they're pretty crazy, mm. uh, as was Kerry. Hmm. But he is one of those people who seems to have, shall we say, died prematurely. Yes. And we'll say here on In the Shed with Wes Anderson, uh, we'll call it an exclusive, Alan, because you you do get this question a lot. You have definitively said you are not Terry R. Wrist, and uh, you don't have to get this question, hopefully, on every other interview after this. Uh, <laughs> you, you have already said so. Um let me ask you I this. I was in the shed and he tortured me. <laughs> See, I've got missing things. No, I don't have missing. I have them folded, but that's okay. <laughs> and finally I said, no, I don't even know the guy. Let me alone. I don't want to go home. That's right. That's right. Um, let me ask you this. When it comes to your uh, view of the world, uh, your paranormal research, your research into ufology, who are some influences on your thinking? The closest to my thinking? Yes. I suppose Valet, who uh, I would say precedes me, Keel, who lesser. Uh, mm. the, the best uh, examples I can think of are mostly from uh, England. Really? Because during back in the day when uh, I was considered an eccentric ufologist, I don't know, maybe you still am, an eccentric ufologist in the United States, uh, my stuff was taken very seriously in England anyway. I don't know about, you know, the rest of Britain or that matter, the rest of Europe, but uh, people like Gordon Crichton and and preeminently the the people who were surrounded by the late great Magonia magazine John Brimmer, notably among them, um, uh, they were on the same channel as me. And I think all issues of Magonia are up free for nothing on the internet. Maybe not free, I don't know. But they're they're available. And I would heartily recommend that because I may have influenced them and they certainly influenced me. Mm. The same would be true of Flying Saucer Review the same would as, uh, be true of the uh, British UFO Research Association, Euphora. Hmm. And then, of course, I have to give credit uh, to uh, the Ordo QBLH that uh, was founded, among others, by uh, the well-named William Wallace Webb. Hmm. W-W-W, <laughs> not made up, not a nom de guerre, just a nom, but he founded it and was the first person that I know of to import the uh, the cipher of the euphonauts hmm. as a magical cipher to the United States. It had been uh, developed in England by uh, Jim Lees and 
uh, Carol Smith and uh, Jake Strait and Kent, who just passed very recently, tragically, hmm. uh, before his time, really. And uh, I was introduced to it by, like, one of the primary movers and shakers in uh, QBLH, uh, Tim Coutte. And it was given to me as a, you know, an occult cipher. And I thought, oh, here's another one, okay. But at some point, very early on, I decided, well, let's see if this applies to anything outside of the occult world. So I started putting in the names of uh, planets that uh, contactees said that they had visited, which were, you know, uh, not real planets that we know of, like Lanulus and uh, Piwam is my favorite name for for Hmm. planet. Uh, and uh, the names that they gave, like George Adamski said his major contact was Orthon, which he somehow magically knew the spelling of, you know, O-R-T-H-O-N. So I ran these through the cipher, through the uh, computer program that uh, uh, Tim had created. He was totally a genius. And uh, I started to get real, meaningful results. Hmm. And the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> For sure. And, um, you know, you have written several books, uh, a lot of titles to your name. How do you choose what to write about, and what does the process of writing a book and researching look like for you? Well, a couple of them are memoirs of various parts of my life. Uh, Saucers and Saucers was originally the one and only self-published book I had, okay. which sold about 100 copies. But it's about uh, it's about ufology. Mm. It's not about UFOs per se, although it you know touches on that. But it's about ufology in the heyday of the teen ufology movement and the uh, early days of the National UFO Conference and so forth. Uh, it was revised, updated, and my friend Rick Hilberg, who also goes back to the beginning of that era, um, provided some new photos and an introduction, and it uh, was reissued, and as far as I know, it's still in print. As, uh, help me on the names. You know, I don't well, I bought a copy on uh, Amazon, so I believe it is still in print. Yeah, it, well, it, uh, but not as Saucers and Saucers. If you found a copy of that, Hold on to it. It's probably worth a lot of money now. All right. Even though the sales were uh, not much back in the self-published days, it's now uh, my current publisher has seen fit to put virtually everything I've ever written back into print, uh, always with you know some new material added. So, and then I uh, had written extensively during my twenty years in the older Templi Orientis uh, on uh, sexual magic and had had a lot of experiences in that area, which there are other books on the subject, but I don't think any of them, with the possible exception of a little book very early on that doesn't say a lot about personal experience. Uh, So... I thought, well, 
I ought to put on record my own experiences, hmm. what happened, what's good, what's not good. And it will be uncomfortable to write. It will be uncomfortable to know that people are basically peering into my personal life, but it's hmm. something that people need to know. And that is uh, almost certainly still in print, uh, true quests for the Holy Grail or the yes. Grail Within, as the current edition is called which is considerably expanded. The other books are based on uh, discoveries. The three books, uh, Secret Cipher, Secret Rituals, and the current one, the Black Lodge book, are a set that comes as close to the source of these various mysteries as I've gotten to date. I get me further, I'll write another book. But uh, that's like the summary of uh, many, many years of research. Mm. And uh, I wrote one history, which is, uh, gosh, it's embarrassing not to know the title of your own books. It just means uh, you've written a lot. Yeah, well, yeah, and I do lose track. Uh, the um, History of Modern Magic from 1700 to 2000, which may be... If I can get around to it, I should expand to bring it up at least to 2020. It's well worth reading if you want to know where uh, the magical universe as it exists today came from. Uh, and what else is there? Oh, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light book, which yes. is the story of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light. First published by Looking Glass Press in Europe and now out from uh, uh, Conspiracy Journal Press uh, there. Uh, what's it called, Celestial Logic Serious uh, imprint. Hmm. And uh, that is based on my own field and literary research into the origin and nature of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light. Uh, so I think that that covers it. Yeah, you, you have written a lot. You are prolific as an author. I have uh, just recently finished my first draft and i use that word in quotes draft of a uh a fiction novel uh based on um different experiences and stories that i've heard in the past and uh i have uh someone that i know who is going to be editing that for me and i'm excited about that um but you have written you have certainly written a lot about a lot of subjects and uh it's that's quite an accomplishment in its own regard well thank you i I've only written what I think people probably need to know if they have an interest in these subjects. Right. Because over the years, I've seen so many people uh, just uh, putting all their apples in the wrong barrel. Hmm. Hmm. Well, let me ask you this, Alan. Uh, we cover all kinds of topics on the show. We've had a wide breadth of conversation already. Um, I want to ask you what you think of Bigfoot. And uh, first, let me just say that when it comes to my interpretation of what people uh, have claimed to have seen, I kind of, I, I put my chips 51 to 49 uh, when it comes to Bigfoot being real in some regard, that people have seen something, there's something going on that we don't quite understand uh, in our forests, in our woods, um, that people call Sasquatch, Bigfoot, whatever, whatever terminology you want to use. Uh, what do you think of Bigfoot? 
I'm more concerned about what Bigfoot thinks of me, but mm. in all seriousness, um, I think a lot of the cases you really need to look at are the witnesses uh, experienced uh, in doing field stuff, hunters, for example, but not new hunters, not somebody you know who just started this year, sees a bear in the distance and wisely retreats, you know, but right. still... Uh, thinking, well, big hairy creature, and it stood upright. Well, bears can do that. You know? They do. Especially uh, if you've seen the movie Cocaine Bear. Well, they <laughs> anywhere. But uh, uh, some of them are misidentifications of bears. Sure. But the intriguing thing is that there's a coexistent misidentification of uh, natural creatures. And these cases that are much stronger, and some of those, they wink in and out of existence like other cryptids. Right. They are occasionally, and more often now than before, at least more often reported, um, they're seen in association with UFOs. Hmm. And that's very interesting. And uh, I think that this whole, we'll call it a cycle, the Yetis of Tibet, the uh, Sasquatch of the Northwest and, and Canada, and Bigfoot of everywhere. Everywhere where there are trees. Yeah. Which, uh, considering where I live, might be right outside my window, but <laughs> it's okay. I'm ready. Uh, and now I hear, and let me editorialize for one second. Sure. If Bigfoot is a natural phenomenon, these recent reports, and apparently is hunting season in some places, so, uh, people report shooting Bigfoot. Mm. And I don't know what's going on, but it's very conceivable that these are uh, a vestigial branch of the human family tree. Mm. And they may be constitute human beings. And killing one of those is homicide. Interesting. I don't think that that's a really, really good idea. Especially if you take the skin home and proudly display it, probably you're going to wind up uh, having to explain yourself at great length. And I suggest only if you're attacked, same rule that would apply to anyone who is, you know, trying to be physically violent towards you. Is there any justification for that? But people shoot at UFOs too, which is they do. even crazier, you know. I mean, suppose they are alien spacecraft and we've been unfriendly to them. Uh, that's not smart. Probably not a really, really good idea. Not so at all. The, the long and short of it is, I think some Bigfoot cases are cryptids, and cryptids are just another manifestation of the same thing that gives us goblins and UFOs and ghosts and you name it. It's outside of you know normal phenomena. And so you you, you kind of see all this as a tapestry that. Uh, that kind of kind of winds together and all connects in a way. Yeah, it took me quite a while to reach that point of view. I mean, I was interested in these various strands, but I didn't assume them to be, you know, one thing. Sure. 
started to think of them because, I mean, there's so many duplications of the response to them, like the Loch Ness Monster Investigation Bureau, Mm -hmm. the Flying Saucer Investigation Bureau, the Bigfoot Investigation Bureau. You know, if they form the same type of organization, then they're forming it around a phenomenon that seems to be uh, amiable towards that type of approach, rightly or wrongly. And if it seems to be amiable to that type of approach, maybe it's a different manifestation of the same phenomenon. Hmm. It just seems logical to me. And on further looking, sometimes you see crossovers. Sure. I don't recall any cases of Nessie uh, appearing out of a flying saucer. But Nessie appears and disappears and appears and disappears. By the way, uh, the Loch Ness monster is among my, I guess it would be my equivalent of Bigfoot. I think that uh, uh, your opinion of Bigfoot, which is, I would say, 30% maybe yes, 70% no. Right. Uh, one way or another. Um, but most of these things seem to be, uh, have a common denominator. And when I reached that point of view, I got even more interested in it because, how to put this, because of the resistance of each one of these subjects to mm. be integrated with other aspects of these subjects. Right. In other words, the magical community wanted nothing to do with UFOs. I got into a major, major dispute with uh, the aforementioned Grand Poobah of the aforementioned uh, magical order over just that. He was saying, oh, well, you know, uh, flying saucers are not respectable, but the occult is. Hmm. And so uh, what is this man talking about? Can he possibly believe that? Because the reverse is certainly true. UFOs, every time it's been polled by Gallup or whoever, it's a, a lot larger than it was when the phenomena first came to people's attention. And it grows, I mean, if you plotted it on a graph, it's it's like the stock market. It has ups and downs, but it, it, this, the long-range outlook is always upward. Sure. Uh, whereas the occult leaves a bad taste in the mouth of at least three quarters of the population, if not more. Hmm. So he was wrong, but you know he was in charge. So I said, <laughs> uh, "Okay, yeah, whatever." And I actually wrote a, a note, a footnote that is in uh, "Secret Rituals of the Men in Black." It's the longest footnote I have ever written, I believe, hmm. uh, which is addressed basically to him it doesn't say so but it is and is to refute uh that approach because that resistance that magicians are part of one thing and ufologists are part of another thing uh circling back to to the uh, the hellier group um they take it all seriously i don't know if they would say that all of it is one the way i tend to but I think they come pretty close to that. I in agree. Words, they see the, the relationship between uh, haunted objects and 
uh, paranormal research or ghost hunting or you know whatever uh, particulars you find. And they are eclectic. And if you're not eclectic, then probably you're not going to get anywhere in any one of these fields because mm. all roads lead to all roads in this particular case. All roads lead to all roads. That might be the quote of the night. Uh, right there. Uh, <laughs> it's a new one. I, I just thought of that. I love okay. that. I love that. Uh, well, let me ask you this, Alan. Um, we've talked about UFOs. We've talked about Bigfoot. We've talked about goblins, um, other realms and realities, uh, magic. What is, in your experience, what is the scariest situation that you have found yourself in? The scariest is when I was caving a couple of years ago, and I've gotten a little bit older caving and i was fortunately with two uh well, i can't call them professional but let's say uh full-time ski lunkers who were very experienced whereas i'm a dabbler right and i was on a shelf inside the cave the shelf turned out to be shale or something of that sort and i it collapsed under me and mm. i fell about four feet which is not your whole life doesn't pass in front of you in four feet. It's enough. But, uh, I did the thing that I've done on the rare occasion when I slipped in a stream or something. You know, I, right arm works, left arm works. Right <laughs> foot works, left foot works. Head seems to be operating. Okay. Mm. So I got up and I thought, well, I, you know, I'm glad I was with people that knew what they were doing because they had to pull me up. And I don't even remember whether we went on exploring or not. But anyway, when I got home, the next day I went to get up and I had thrown my back out. Wow. Bad. So that was a month of physiotherapy and three or four days of agony getting there. So I think I, my caving days are <laughs> over. But the lesson learned is, uh, you know, that was terrifying, but not because of anything, you know, mystical, but because it was uh, physically... Uh, uh, jarring. That's that's kind of amazing. Everything that you've experienced and written about and been been a part of, that your scariest moment has to do with the physical reality of of where you were and where you ex were exploring. Exactly, and I think that uh, uh, field researchers need to be cognizant of that. You need to be in pretty fit shape. You need mm -hmm. to have a a, a sober. Uh, assessment of your own abilities, your own limitations, and you need to be either you need to be uh, well equipped for mountaineering or caving or whatever it is. You also need to be equipped uh, psychologically. Hmm. Um, like uh, a field researcher, there's a UFO organization that teaches its uh, field researchers to fill out a form. Well, there ain't no form. You can't have a checklist of things that happened and didn't happen because that can vary from case to case. Right. You need to have a recorder of some sort, preferably not intimidating. You need to have an amiable manner about yourself. Like uh, when I was researching the Hermetic Brotherhood of Life, uh, I wanted to speak with one of the descendants of the last frontal chief, uh, Peter Davidson, of the HBL. And uh, I found a 
descendant in a small North Georgia town who uh, was willing to talk to me, but I noticed a reluctance. And I'm from the Deep South, so Mm. that could just be small town reaction to the big city slicker coming. So uh, I did my best to be reassuring. And I found out there had been a previous investigator, perhaps a theosophist, I think, Hmm. She's, she was a uh, grammar school teacher, and this dude walked into her classroom, you know, from New York or Boston or wherever. Right. And I thought, I really know that there is a way to do these things and a way not to do these things. And whoever that guy was, he could have, you know, silenced a person who had something to say about all this forever. Hmm. So, you know, you need to have diplomatic skills. You need to have uh, a sense of locality. You need to also have a sense of there are far more silent contactees, to use uh, John Keel's term, than there are noisy contactees. Maybe that's unfair, but, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Hmm. In other words, most people who have a really, really strange experience with a ghost or a goblin or a, or a uh, uh, alien abduction, especially if it's one of those with the, the friendly rectal probe, you know, <laughs> they're not going to go knocking on their neighbor's doors and go down to the local newspaper and say, you'll never guess what happened to me. Right. Uh, they're going to shut up about it. They may not even tell their own family. Hmm. And the discretion used by the investigator has to be such that you know if the case is sensitive, that the level of sensitivity needs to be uh, in uppermost in the mind of the investigator. Hmm. That doesn't mean if the case turns out to be kooky, that uh, you uh, should you know give them excessive benefit of the doubt. But it does mean that even if it turns out to be a hoax, you're not there as a newspaper reporter. You're there as a field investigator in your chosen field. And you right. need to exercise uh, due discretion. Mm, that's good advice. And uh, listen, you are um, someone who is certainly eclectic, uh, who is um, interesting, who is knowledgeable, um, I'm so thankful that you have agreed and, and uh, spent so much time. You've been so generous with your time tonight. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Before we go, is there anything that you'd like to plug? Uh, where can our listeners buy your books? How can they keep up with your work? Where can they follow you online? Well, the best place to find virtually all of my books, although I'm a, let me give you one caveat. They've got some things listed that are not my books. Okay. Like, um, uh, let's see, what is it called? It's something that my late friend Timothy Green Beckley got out, and it has an article by me in the back of it. But, uh, um, I mean, there are a couple of Beckley books out there, big, large books, but they're not my books. So I would not, not go to those. Um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with them. It's just not something that I need to promote. It's, sure. It's inner, what is the name of his publishing company, Inner Lights Publication, and I guess there's still many copies of those around. And there is the interesting story of the book on Wicca, which 
has my name on it, but which I didn't write. <laughs> Interesting. It was published as a bootleg, and it's now out as a legitimate edition. Uh, the material in it, I've never seen it personally, but the material in it is based on stuff that I wrote on one, one or another of my websites over the years. I've been on the Internet for ages, uh, even going back to, you know, when it was the ARPANET before the, the big hookup of the entire world. So... Uh, you might read that with with caution, mm. uh, but for God's sake, get the authorized edition because uh, I haven't seen it, but I trust the publisher. Uh, the all of my other books, you can get them from Amazon easily, but you can also get most of them from Barnes and Noble. Okay, uh, uh, and frankly, almost every bookseller online. Uh, sells my books so you know awesome. if you prefer uh, not to give what's his name Bezos yeah <laughs> you, you have other options and uh, uh, as far as I know almost all of my books are in print and available but of course the one that I plug the most at the moment is uh, the, the current book which is selling very well um, Secrets of the Real Black Lodge mm. Revealed. I say the real <clears throat> to distinguish it from David Lynch and the uh, Twin Peaks version of the Black Lodge, although that's on the right track, too. Well, that's good to know. Uh, Dr. Alan Greenfield, you are a scholar and a gentleman, and we are so thankful that you have joined us in the show tonight. I've so enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being here with us. Anytime, bro. Anytime. That's all for this week. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I can't either. It's back in the house and out of the shed for me. Thanks again for listening to episode 68. Make sure to subscribe, like, share, and review. It really does help. If you have any paranormal experiences, opinions about sports or politics that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. Join our membership club at patreon.com slash intheshed4. Look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, the Good Pods app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to follow us on X at In the Shed 4. Tune in again next week when we hit the headlines, talk some sports, and take a look together at the incredible true story of the Circleville Letters. This has been In the Shed with Wes Anderson, the best news show in the land covering politics, sports, and the paranormal. Have an adventurous and fulfilling weekend. I'll catch you tools later. Peace out, Boy Scouts. Meemaw, we made it! We sure did.